0: Welcome to the Freedom to Learn podcast, exploring freedom, autonomy, and social justice in education. This recording was made at the 2020 Freedom to Learn online forum. Hello, thank you for coming today. My talk is called Changing Our Minds, the Psychology of Self-Directed Education, and I am Naomi Fisher. I'm going to start by introducing myself I'm a clinical psychologist who has specialist experience in working with people with trauma and also in working with children with neurodevelopmental issues. So that means often children who've had diagnoses of autism or ADHD. I'm the mother of two self-directed learners. They were unschooled from the start and now most recently they've, been, they've spent the last two years in a self-directed school in Paris. I'm an author of the forthcoming book, Changing Our Minds, How Children Can Take Control of Their Own Learning, which is to be published by Little Brown in February 2021. And at the end, I'll give you a link in case you want to pre-order. What am I going to talk about today? Well, I'm going to talk about the psychology of self-directed learning. I'm going to start with talking about the theories, psychological theories of how we think people learn. I'm then going to talk a bit about how schools approach learning and I'm going to argue that the two don't really marry up. I'll then outline four paradoxes which I think make learning harder at school and these are due to the way that school organizes itself. I'll talk then about how self-directed education resolves these paradoxes and then at the end I'll talk a bit about the psychology of self-directed learning and why I think it works so well. So how do psychologists study children's learning? Because this is really important because how we understand children's learning really gets to the heart of what we think education should be. And education should be based on the best knowledge that we have about how children learn. This isn't how school was designed. Nobody went and did lots of research studies and decided that the best way for people to learn was to put them in groups of th- around 30 children, all of around the same age, with a teacher, and to march them through a curriculum. There was never any research that showed that schooling started in the way it did because it was convenient it meant you could educate a lot of children with relatively few adults schools followed curriculums because that meant you could standardize things but also you didn't have to train your teachers so hard you didn't have to give them so much training if you could get them to go through a textbook which had already been organized by someone else So a lot of the way that we had had to do school now was actually started by the Victorians, or even earlier than that by the Prussians, who were the the people who started schools. And they started school with a very particular agenda. They wanted to train children to be good workers. So the Victorian schools that we have in the UK used many of the aspects that factories had. They had bells for when children arrived and when they left, they lined children up It was a lot of it was about discipline. It wasn't actually about how they learnt best. When psychologists have tried to understand learning, they've done it in two main ways when they try and understand how children learn. They do experiments and then they also do observations. And I'm going to argue that these two ways are quite different, but it's also quite important to think about how we've come to understand learning and what we really mean when we say we're talking about the science of learning or the psychology of learning. When you do an experiment into learning, typically you bring children into a laboratory. So you remove the context. You set up a strange situation by the researcher. They're in an attempt to answer a specific, quite focused question. This might make complex things quite seem quite simple. And often experiments are set up to apparently answer quite straightforward questions. So a lot of experiments in psychology involve people learning lists of nonsense words for example. I participated in quite a few studies when I was an undergraduate because we would be paid to do so and I would have to go along and see very very dull sets of checkerboards that came up in front of me and I had to try and remember the different configurations of the checkerboards. Uh, I would sit there literally for hours watching checkerboard after, checkerboard after checkerboard after checkerboard, trying to remember them. And that was the kind of experiments they were doing on learning at the time. So, when we do that with children, this is a, a little video here which is going to show you a bit of how we do video. Well, I hope it is anyway. I'll go back and see if I can get the video to play. There it is. Let's see if that will work. So, this is a very famous experiment that is often done with children. With the marshmallow test.
1: The marshmallow test is a really great way to show how children delay gratification. We tried it out with the four children we've been following since September 2010: Alfie, Millie, Makai, and Pratmesh.
0: So you can see that these children Here's are brought in a strange situation. We Seated have at each chair. child on
1: their own, sit at the table, at a desk with. Uh, a plate and one marshmallow. They could either choose to eat the marshmallow, the one marshmallow, right then and there, or they could wait until I came back into the room and have two marshmallows. I left them alone in the room for 15 minutes. Take a look. So these are four and five-year-old children. The marshmallow test has been used for decades by psychologists. It's been used with children to predict later academic success, including literacy, SAT scores, and other academic outcomes. There's no definitive answers from the marshmallow test. It's not a matter of passing or failing. What we're looking for is whether children can really resist this piece of white candy sitting in front of them that's sweet, that, you know, the smell of it, the allure of the marshmallow. In Pratmesh's case, we really saw this added curiosity because he had never actually tasted a marshmallow before. All of the children managed to show some level of self-control and resist the temptation to eat the whole marshmallow. As you can see from the footage, you can catch a glimpse into children's ability to control their impulses. This ability, which is developed around the time of kindergarten, can be linked to other outcomes later in life. At the end, the marshmallows were in kind of different states. Some had been squished, ripped apart, nibbled around. There was this temptation, and there was this impulse to kind of try it out. <laughs>
0: So they brought these children into a a empty room, they put a marshmallow in front of them and they sat them there for 15 minutes. These are four and five year olds who probably very rarely spend that amount of time by themselves, Um, certainly not with a marshmallow in front of them. And they're using that as a test of the children's self-control and it's a very well-established test in psychology. So I think the interesting thing about that to see is what a strange environment we put children in when we do these kind of environments. Probably a situation that they're never in in any other time of their life. And we ask them to do something that they're never asked to do in another time of their life. And also we ignore the child's own experience. She said in passing there, she said one of those little boys had never tasted a marshmallow before. Now it's interesting the different experience that those different children are bringing to this situation we don't know whether what a marshmallow represents to each of those children whether to some children a marshmallow is the only sweets they've ever had whereas other children may have sweets all the time and a marshmallow just doesn't have the same value none of that matters when we're doing something like the marshmallow experiment the other way that we try to learn about children and their learning is by observing them and observations are an awful lot messier than experiments Experiments are so beautifully controlled. You could see those children, everything so beautifully controlled. But when you're doing real life observations, it's much more likely to turn out a bit like this. Really hard to quantify the results. But nevertheless, observations, close observations of children were behind most of the theories in developmental psychology. Piaget is perhaps the most famous developmental psychologist. He observed his I think it was his nephew and his daughter very, very closely over years. And that is what he based most of his theories on. He didn't set them up like those children in the laboratory. He simply observed what the children were doing. I'm going to play a video now of a little observation of children in a preschool. These are the same aged children as the ones you just saw in the experiment. And I'd like you to just look at how different their children as they just naturally play. And this is actually a preschool environment, so it's not really naturally playing. They've got, it's set up, but they're allowed to play freely in that environment. I'd like you to notice what they're doing and notice particularly this little girl at the front here with the pink shorts on and notice what she's doing.
2: Oops, is that gonna work? Hopefully. Are you filling up the pipe there, Amelia?
1: So now the children have been directed here.
2: Carry it over here. You fill that up really well, Jaden. Ah, you're going to put it into the cubicle holders, are you? Hmm. I can see a little spoon here, a scooper. Yeah. It's that big scooper. Is it? Is, has Mim finished with it for now, Zia? Okay. We might use that one for now. Would you like to use this one, Jaden? No. No. way, I want the small one. The small one. Would you like to ask Zia to use the small one? I think Jaden's thinking about using a small spoon because he wants to do small scoops into his little tray here. Morning. Yeah, whereabouts did you see one, Zia? I short one when I was walking everywhere in the world. Okay. Jaden, would you like to come have a look for another small spoon? Okay. Ah, great idea, Amelia. Well spotted. Ah, that works quite well.
0: So, you can see that when you're observing small children, their play is quite different when you set up an experiment. In particular, I think that little girl was quite interesting because if you watched, in fact, if you watched all the children of this age, they were constantly experimenting with their environment. They were interacting with their environment. She was doing things like she was tapping along the wall. She was filling up things with sand. No one was telling her to do that. She was doing that because she was interested and because she was motivated. And the educator was talking with them in a very non-directive way. He was reflecting about what they were doing. He wasn't telling them to do things. And when we observe small children, we see the other thing we've noticed there was the social interaction between the children, that little girl with the pink shorts, Amelia, she was sort of on the periphery of the group, but she was quite clearly noticing what was going on between the educator and the other little boy, Jaden, to the point that when the small spoon was noticed, Amelia went and found the small spoon without any question whatsoever. So there's a lot of very subtle social interaction experimentation that goes on in this age group, which is completely lost when we sit them in front of a table and tell them they've got to wait for 15 minutes for a marshmallow. So all this different work, there's been observations of children learning, there have been theories of le- experiments, have led to a whole set of different theories about how children learn. The earliest theories in psychology were behavioral. And this was really about how you could change behavior through changing the environment. So perhaps the most famous behavioral experiment was Pavlov's dog. Pavlov was a, or Pavlov was a Russian physiologist who managed to train a dog to salivate when he rang the bell. And the way he did this was when he, he gave him food when he rang the bell. And then after a while, the dog learned to associate the bell with the food and would salivate just when the bell was rung. He didn't uh, any longer need to be given the food. Skinner was a psychologist in Harvard in the 1940s and 50s, and he managed to train rats to pull levers in order to get rewards. So they would pull on a lever to get sugar water, for example. Behaviourism is all about behaviour, the clues in the word. So it's all about how to change behaviour. And a lot of what goes on in schools now is actually Based on behavioral theory. So, when, for example, we do a star star chart with a young child, that is a behavioral strategy. We're trying to reward the behavior that we want, so we give child stars. Punishment is also a behavioral strategy. We're trying to pair the behavior that we don't want with a punishment, with something aversive. So, we're trying to effectively persuade children to stop doing things that we don't want by punishing them and get them to do more of the things we do want by rewarding them. Another theory of learning, which came along after behavioral, were cognitive theories. Because the thing about behavioral theories is they effectively treat children a bit like dogs or rats. They basically think if we can get the external contingencies right, the child will behave in the way we want them to behave. Doesn't really matter what the children thinks about, what the child thinks about it. Doesn't matter if the child is furious at being punished. Doesn't matter as long as it gets the desired result it's quite limited in what you can measure in terms of learning if you're only measuring things in terms of behavior cognitive is about thinking and thoughts cognitive theories of of learning tend to be more focused on memory and how to remember things best so there are some there are some cognitive scientists like daniel willingham who've written books recently arguing that the the problem with the curriculum, the problem with schools is that children need to be taught more knowledge. E.D. Hirsch in America puts forward a similar case. So they argue that the difference between deprived children and middle class children is that middle class children have more knowledge. We need to fill those the deprived children with more knowledge and we will will have a more equal society. And the way they do that is by using cognitive strategies to help children memorise things. So there are some schools that are even set up on this basis of cognitive science, they call it, where the whole of the basis of the school is, is founded on principles of memory. So basically, you get children to repeat something very, very often because that's the best way to remember it you follow the follow, they show when they do studies on memory, they find that first you remember quite a lot and then over time you start to forget. So what they do is they teach the same material again after a certain amount of time to keep the children remembering. They get them to revise it all for homework. So basically they're training the children's memories with the idea that that is how they're going to become expert and that is how they are going to succeed in life. Again, the cognitive theories of learning tend not to focus very much on the children themselves. It's more about how to get information into the children, how to get the children to remember the information, not so much about the interaction between the child and what we're teaching them. That was the next generation of theories, constructivist theories of learning. And these these were put forward by people like Alison Gopnik, who is a developmental psychologist who's written a great book called The Carpenter and the Gardener, or perhaps The Gardener and the Carpenter, actually, I think. Um, She talks about children as scientists and i think you could see that really well in that video just now of of the children in the preschool children experimenting but also always using what they already know so a child is never a blank slate in this theory you're always they're always they're always evaluating what's going on around them and they're making connections based on what they already know so for example they do do some interesting experiments which show that children uh, if children are told information by two people, they'll assess, even by the age of three or four, they're already assessing who's the most trustworthy person, which information they should be agreeing with. So they're more likely to take information that comes from their parent, for example, if they believe their parent to be trustworthy. They're less likely to take it from somebody who they don't, who they don't believe. They're making those kind of evaluations all the time. Another theory of learning, which is more um, educational rather than psychological, is that of seeing learning as a cultural practice. So this is a communities of practice. And this is when you see learning as something that children do within a context always. So everything they learn is actually a cult, is part of their becoming part of their culture. It's very different to cognitive and behavior strategies because it sees children's development and children's learning as a process of becoming part of their community. So for example, a child might learn to cook, not because they've been taught to cook by somebody, but because in their community, people cook, and they go and cook in the kitchen with their parents, and over time, they learn how to cook without ever having to be trained in it, without ever anyone having to teach them, because that's what people do in their their culture. Learning a language is a similar thing. If you're learning a language because it's part of your culture, it's part of your community, that's a very different process to learning a language in a classroom, which would be often based on a more cognitive model of learning. So how do schools understand learning? Well, if we think back to those videos, after the early years, school is often more like that marshmallow experiment than the free play of the preschool. Schools take children out of their context, and they then remove control from them. They take away distractions and then they test well Children on how well they can comply with instructions. So, their model is very much not one of learning in a community. the, The school community is one that is focused on a particular kind of learning. So, this approach to learning lends itself more to the cognitive and behavioral models of psychological theories of learning because schools are trying to standardize learning. They want all children to learn the same things. Really, what they're trying to do is get all children to learn the same things really well. That would be their best measure. If you're going more towards a constructivist theory of learning or even a community of practice idea of learning, you have to acknowledge that every child is going to learn something different. You cannot standardize what they learn because each child is different. And that means that what they get from their environment will be different. But in schools, success is often measured by how well children remember what they been taught which is what an exam is it's not therefore really surprising that success at school correlates quite well with early self-control as measured by the marshmallow test because in many ways and for many children school is one long marshmallow test we take them out of their context we take them out of their environment we put them at a desk We tell them not to talk to other people and we tell them at the end, there will be a reward. At the end, you will be able to do a job you want, for example, you will be successful. But in the meantime, you've just got to keep plugging away, even if you're not very interested and even if you don't see the point. It's quite a lot like the marshmallow test in my opinion. So what is the problem? Well, I think conventional schooling introduces paradoxes between child psychology and learning. These make it harder for children to learn. And the key problem is that when children find it hard to learn, we think the problem is with them. This means that schools are never really challenged to change because what's happening is that more and more children are simply being diagnosed with special educational needs. What does that mean? Special educational needs means that the child needs more than the standard school setting. They need need more help to get them through. 15% is a lot of children and those are only the children who are actually getting diagnosed with special educational needs. There will be another whole set of children who are struggling but don't quite reach threshold. For all of them we're not letting them challenge the way that school works instead we're saying the children there's a problem with the children. So I'm going to outline the four ways in which I think school sets up a paradox between child psychology and learning. The first is control. Schools remove control from children. This means the moment a child goes through the door of the school, they have all sorts of control taken away from them. Generally, they have to wear clothes that they haven't chosen. They are not allowed to take toys in with them. They certainly can't take a tablet with them or a book. They have to, take, they have to do every moment of the school day. They have to, what they have to do is dictated by somebody else. This means they cannot effectively interact with their environment because they don't have meaningful choices and their environment is restricted. So just think about those two videos again, the marshmallow test and the observation. Think about those different environments. In one environment, there was nothing for those children to do except look at the marshmallow. In the other environment, there were so many things for the children to do if they wanted to. If they got bored of the sandpit, they could just wander off and go on the rope swing. That's the kind of environment which allows children to make choices. A classroom has very limited choices. We know from the research that people who have low autonomy are less motivated to learn. They have lower intrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation is when you do something because you really enjoy it, because you want to do it, not because somebody is threatening to punish you if you don't do it, for example, or because somebody is telling you that if you don't do it, you won't win prizes. Intrinsic motivation is when you do something because you want to do it. If you saw those young children in that preschool setting, they were all doing things there because they wanted to do them. Nobody was saying, come on, you've got to come and play in the sandpit now. It, otherwise, you know, you're not going to get your exam results when you're 16. They didn't need to because those children were just exploring. The environment was beautifully set up. They were exploring it. But when we put children in a classroom, motivation becomes a problem because we've taken away their choices and we know that when we take away autonomy, intrinsic motivation dies. There are lots of studies which show this. You can take away autonomy in many different ways. Rewards and punishments are one very easy way to take them away. Restricting the environment is another way to take it away. And there are these studies with preschoolers that date back to the 1970s, which showed that when preschoolers were doing something they really enjoyed doing, which was drawing a picture, if they gave the experimenters gave them a sticker afterwards and then they came back a bit later and they divided the children into two groups the ones who'd been given a sticker the ones who hadn't been given a sticker and they discovered the children who'd been given a sticker for doing the for um drawing the pictures and who'd been told if you draw a picture i'll give you a sticker were no longer as interested in drawing pictures when there was no sticker anymore so they had whereas the children who were never given a sticker were more interested in drawing pictures because they liked drawing pictures that was why they did it they didn't do it for the sticker so when we introduce rewards like that adults do that with the best motivations they think they're help they're helping children learn but actually what they're doing is destroying their intrinsic motivations so lack of control creates this lack of motivation but when we have a child who's not motivated we say that this is a problem in the child we say this is an attitude problem Empowerment. Education is meant to be empowering. You can see there are websites everywhere about educational initiatives which talk about empowering children, transforming lives. We, the UK put, puts aid money all over the world to build more schools, empower, empower different countries, but we can't get away from the fact that schools take power away from children. I can't think of another sector where we justify removing power from people in order to empower them. Because taking power away from people has all sorts of consequences. When people are powerless, they tend to either give up and submit, which looks like apathy, or they resist, which looks like antisocial behavior or school refusal. So by removing power from children, schools create apathy and resistance. And then, you've guessed it, we say that this is a problem with the children. The next problem the next paradox that school sets up for children is context or rather lack of context a school classroom is a restricted environment it's where things are learnt for the future but not really for now we don't learn things children in school aren't learning something because they really really want to know it now they're learning it because somebody has said this is what you should be learning now because you're six for example When we learn in context, we do it because we want to or because we need to acquire skills. So, for example, when we moved to France um, two years ago, my children had to learn French. My daughter in particular didn't really speak any French and very quickly she learned quite a lot of French. She was totally motivated because she couldn't play with the other children unless she learned French nobody sat her down in the classroom nobody tried to teach her how to say je m'appelle in fact i'm even not sure now if she knows how to say je m'appelle because it didn't really come up very often but she learned french and she can now talk french she learned that in context because she needed french and she wanted to learn french and research on social learning shows that in a rich in learning environment children will learn using a whole range of methods and they will all learn different things depending on what they're motivated by and what's interesting however when we take learning out of context as we have as we do in school we immediately have a problem it becomes hard and boring you've got a good example with french my husband has studied studied french for five years in school he speaks a lot less french than my daughter does he studied it he was there he's got an O level in french i think he's got an a or a B. he can't speak french and he doesn't like doing french he finds it boring <laughs> and But this goes again and again, everything, when we take it out of context, suddenly we have made learning more difficult. Schools do this, they make learning more difficult, but then when the children find it hard, we don't say that this is a problem with the school, we say that those children have difficulties in learning. And the last paradox which I think schools set up is anxiety. Schools deliberately use anxiety to motivate children. From When children are very young, they're told things like, if you don't come to school, you'll never get a good job. If you don't study hard and pass your exams, then you'll be a failure. If you don't do as I say, then you'll end up on the scrap heap, Is even said by some less politically correct teachers. And it works. Children do become anxious. It's deliberate. They've done it deliberately. But anxiety is a survival response its evolutionary purpose was to keep our ancestors safe and close to the fire it we the way we respond when we're anxious if we get very anxious is we freeze we fight or we run away fff freeze fight or flight that isn't a very good way state to be in in order to learn effectively because anxiety is just about keeping you safe so The way when you're very anxious, you avoid challenge, you avoid exploration, you avoid new experiences because you're trying to keep you safe. And really your brain is just focused on keeping you alive. Staying safe is not the same thing as effective learning. And in fact, anxiety paralyzes creative and flexible thinking. And I know schools will say, well, we're not making children very anxious. We're just using a bit of anxiety. You can't do that. You can't titrate anxiety in another person. If you try and make someone anxious, and they get very anxious, then you've got a big problem. And if you're deliberately using anxiety, then you need to, th- I think, take a serious look at why you have to use anxiety, why you have so little faith in children's ability to learn that you're having to try to motivate them with anxiety. Because I think this is a problem that then carries on with children throughout their lives. As adults as well, we have many, many anxious adults. And when I ask them about it, a lot of their anxiety dates back to child to, to school. And again, when the child, children are anxious, we say that this is a problem with this child. So we've got four ways here in which school creates a problem, sets up a paradox where which makes learning more difficult, and then when children say, this is difficult, we say, it, the problem's you. But what if the problem actually isn't the children? What if, instead, instead of doing what we currently do, we put children and their psychology at the center of their learning. What might be different then? Well, it's not gonna be a surprise to any of you that I think self-directed education does this. With self-directed education, the way I define it, children choose what they learn, how they learn it, and crucially, when to stop. So they are in control of the process. This doesn't actually assume any particular pedagogical method or rule anything out. So a child could choose a structured educational program and that would be their choice. But they do need to be choosing that freely. Often parents don't quite, well, it's very easy for parents not to be aware of their control and how they are subtly controlling their children. And parents will often happily say, oh, my children choose never to play video games. It's a free choice. Well, yes, maybe it is, but I wonder just what messages you've given your children about what people are like you play video games. Are you someone who plays video games? Are you someone who, who, do they have friends who play video games? Do you talk favorably about the things that video games can do and what you can learn from video games? Or are you someone who's created an atmosphere where in our family, we don't play video games? I think it's something that's the work that parents really have to do to unpick their own subtle levels of control. Because what self-directed education does rule out is coercion in all its forms. That means rewards, punishments, means emotional manipulation, means shaming, and it means use of parental approval or disapproval to restrict children's choices. But I'm going to argue that I think self-directed education resolves some of those paradoxes. In fact, all four of the paradoxes which school sets up, because it works with child psychology rather than against it which means that it sets children free to learn at their own pace. This therefore avoids some of the traps which conventional schooling just cannot avoid. It's not a question of tweaking things, it cannot avoid it if it sets up a system where children are made to go and where their time is controlled. So the first one is control. So in self-directed education, children never lose control over their learning. just doesn't happen no one ever says right come on the fun years are over it's time for you to sit down and learn now because they never make a distinction between learning being something one does in school and play it's always one research shows us that children learn best when they have control and choices and the best nurseries just like that preschool you saw in the video are self-directed learning environments There is no evidence anywhere that this changes when children reach five. In fact, in many countries, this stage of play-based education goes on much longer. By keeping the control with the child, we allow their intrinsic motivation to flourish, which makes learning efficient and effective and much more fun for everyone. Children can then move on from that free play stage when they are ready, not when school thinks they should be ready. I was going to talk about empowerment because managing your own power is the work of a lifetime. And in self-directed education, children are never made to feel that they are helpless and that their job is to do what they're told, which is what many children feel at school. They therefore retain their own their understanding of themselves as active participants in their life, able to make changes in their environment. This is really important, particularly for highly resistant children who may be particularly sensitive to others using power over them, because a really empowered person must be able to say no. If your children don't say no to you, then it's probably worth taking a step back and wondering if they're able to. It's not very convenient when your children say no to you, and often it would, there, are lots of, there are loads of parent, parenting manuals describing how to stop your children saying no to you. But I'm saying those no's are important. It's part of children learning to use their power. And it's also part of children learning to know themselves and know their own limits and know what's important to them. And no adult can predict that for any child. The child must learn that for themselves. Self-directed learning is never taken out of context. We never put the children into a classroom in the same way. Instead, adults focus on providing a rich and varied learning environment. However they do that, some adults will do that at home. Those are home-educated children. In self-directed schools, they also set up a rich and varied learning environment. So I don't know if people here have visited any self-directed schools But what they typically have is different rooms with different activities in them. So my children's school in Paris had a computer room. It had an art room. It had a sort of common room with a kitchen. It had a quiet room with books and and more computers. It had a film room with a big TV. It had a sort of soft play room with mattresses where the children would go and bounce. It had a music room. And the children could flow freely between those rooms, although sometimes they could also book them out if they wanted to do a club or something in one of those but they, there were no classes. No one said, this is where you are today. They could come in and out of the rooms as they wanted to. And the rooms, it was all variable. So if the children decided that actually, for example, they didn't want their soft play, any room, their soft play room anymore, or maybe they wanted to turn it into a climbing room, that would be possible. Or if they decided that they needed to have better soundproofing in the music room or they needed to move the film room into a different place because it was, the films were annoying the people doing the art, that could happen. It needs to be a rich and flexible learning environment. This enables children to learn what interests them and to do it when it interests them. There's a moment when they're interested in something, when learning just flows. And if you say, oh, we'll do it next week, you've lost it you've lost the moment. And this is how developmental psychologists observe young children learning most effectively. And of course, most of the work in developmental psychology assumes that this time has to end because for most school children, it does end. And school, I think, is like the invisible factor in most psychology studies. It never really seems to occur to anybody to look at school as an intervention in childhood because all the children in their studies go to school and typically all the children go to school in one cultural environment so in the uk all the children that you're seeing will be going to school at about five they'll be learning phonics at about four or five they'll all be doing the same thing which means we don't actually know what happens to children outside school we don't know how much of what we're seeing in the changes in them is actually due to this massive intervention in childhood that is represented by school Because when we don't take children out of their context of learning, motivation to learn isn't a problem because it's provided by the context. Of course, there's a difference between motivation to learn and motivation to learn what somebody else wants you to learn. In schools, generally when when they say someone isn't motivated, a child isn't motivated, what they mean is they're not motivated to learn what the teacher wants them to learn. They may well be quite motivated to learn what they want to learn. And of course, with self-directed education, we don't draw that distinction. We don't say, this is what you should be learning. And yes, we know that you'd really rather be learning about Minecraft because we want you to be learning about maths. That distinction is never drawn. With what they're interested in, that's what they can learn about. And anxiety. Self directed education does not use anxiety to motivate and control children. There isn't a need because autonomous learners in a rich learning environment are self motivated and we don't need to try and create anxiety to motivate them. This means that children can learn free of the worries about what this learning might mean. What I mean about that is that there's some really interesting studies which find that when you tell children and adults as well, actually, when you tell um, learners that they're going to be assessed on something, they will choose the easiest option. And I know this from my own experience. I did this again and again. When I chose my GCSEs, I chose music. I didn't choose music because I really enjoyed it or because I wanted a GCSE in music. I chose it because I was almost sure I would get an A. And the other choices were art and something else. I Can't remember what it was, probably design technology. Actually, I really would have liked to do art, but I didn't think I would get an A in it. And it seemed most important to me at the time to get an A. So therefore I chose music. And I didn't really enjoy it, and I didn't learn very much at all, but I did get the A. And we find cr- again and again and again that this is what happens when you tell people they're going to be assessed. Whereas if you tell people they're not going to be assessed and there's no mark at the end, then they might choose more int- They'll choose what interests them. They'll choose what they think they might learn most about. So we've got two contradictory aims here. We've got what I'm going to do best at and what I'm going to learn most from. They're not the same thing. So in order to reduce this anxiety, we need to allow children to be free to fail. They must be able to fail without shame and without consequences. There's something really it's really anxiety-provoking about telling children from very early on that their failure will have consequences. It means that right from the beginning, they're not able to freely explore their interests. Self-directed children can learn to manage anxiety in their own time because when they're in control, can choose to challenge themselves when they're ready to challenge themselves rather than being pushed into it because in self-directed education learning happens in the interaction between a child and their environment we keep the child at the center of their education so if you were thinking of a visual of a classroom you'd have the teacher in the middle trying to impart information to all the children in self-directed education you have the child in the middle who's pulling in learning from wherever they might find it. So they might be talking to adults, their family, but also other adults, ideally, other children, computers and tablets, books, the natural world, activities and workshops, the environment around them. They're pulling in things and each child will be creating a unique learning environment for themselves. And then one of the things that people say but surely do you really mean do you really mean they can choose what they do and doesn't that mean that they'll play all day well yes it does in the way that three two and three-year-olds play all day and learn an enormous amount whilst they're doing it psychologists talk about this early stage of learning the play all day stage as the discovery phase all young children are in this phase when they're allowed to be unfortunately school systems try to push them out of this and People sometimes say the UK system is particularly bad, but actually I've heard that in Spain and in France, by two or three, they're trying to get children sitting in chairs and then they put tennis balls on the chairs because the children are trying to rock around and move. They're trying to force children into a situation which is highly unnatural for them because they are in the discovery stage of learning. They're highly distractible. They don't usually focus for very long and they move all the time from activity to activity. This is play-based learning, and it's very effective. They learn how to talk, they learn how to walk, they learn learn a lot about their environment, they learn a lot about social skills, all through this kind of learning. And what we see with self-directed children is that they often stay in this stage for longer. So they'll often still be spending their whole days in free play when they're maybe seven or eight or nine. Whereas by that point, school children will be saying, I can't play all day anymore, I'm much too old for that. And school children are often told told that they can no longer play. They're taught to think of play as something that's inferior or something you just do at playtime. Whereas self-directed children are never told that. So they always see play as valuable in the same way as it always was when they were young. Now, there is a different stage. And sometimes people can't quite imagine if a child isn't schooled, what will happen to them? Will they simply stay at this stage of playing all day? They don't they move on to a mastery phase of learning. The mastery phase is the phase when they start to develop expertise. They start to be able to focus more and concentrate longer. And often in the literature, we find that it's assumed that this happens when schools push children into this stage, or people say, well, this is when teachers have to intervene and we have to have structured learning because otherwise they would just continue in the discovery phase and you can't learn everything through discovery. No, it's true, you can't learn everything through discovery and play, but you don't need to because as children get older, they move naturally into this mastery phase of learning. And in fact, we know this because if you look across the world, the adults, there have been adults who haven't gone to school for absolutely millennia, and there are still many, many adults who don't go to school today, and they're not playing all day anymore. They are focused, they are able to work, they've learned the skills they need to do that. They haven't, there is something developmental that happens from the time. Young children, the way they interact with the world is play. Adults, that isn't the case anymore. They interact with the world in a different way. And this isn't something that school has to make happen. Mastery learning. You see, people often say children have to be made to engage in mastery learning, otherwise they won't learn anything. But yet, the evidence is all around us that adults engage in mastery learning through choice, either because they enjoy it or because they see purpose for it. I do it all the time. I don't really understand why we should think that children should be any different. It's like we think that between the ages of five and 16, a completely different set of rules apply to learning. We know that young children learn best when they're self-directed. We We know that adults learn best when they're self-directed and we don't make all adults do the same things, but between five and 16, we think control and coercion is the way to go. But what we see when we observe self-directed children is that they start to engage in mastery learning naturally without this being imposed from the outside. It often happens later than in school children and it's not the same as compulsory learning. So for example, I saw this in my own children. My son, when he was about nine, decided he wanted to learn to ride the bicycle. Before that, he really had not managed to learn his bicycle at all. He he just fell off it straight away. And I was starting to think, oh, I'm not sure he's going to manage to learn to ride this bicycle. Then one summer when he was nine, he just got on that bicycle and he just fell off it. But after, the whole afternoon, got on, pedaled a bit, fell off. Got on, pedaled a bit. He wore long trousers and long sleeves and he like gouged holes in the elbows, but he just kept going. And by the end of that day, he'd learned how to ride his bicycle. And that was mastery learning. He was determined to get to the point of being able to ride the bicycle. And he's never forgotten. He can still ride his bicycle. So I'm saying that this shift happens in self-directed children just the same as it does for children at school. But it happens in their own time rather than on the school's time. Unstructured play goes on for longer in self-directed children because they're never shamed for it. And they're never told it's less important than other forms of learning. And so they carry on. The progress this means that their progress often appears to be less linear with this kind of learning it's the messiness of real life we don't school gives the illusion of progress through this curriculum but actually we don't really know what the children are properly understanding just because they're memorizing a curriculum and are able to regurgitate it doesn't actually mean that there's deep learning going on when we see the learning that's going on with self-directed children It may be that they do something much slower than other children, but when they get there, they do it because they want to do it and they learn it efficiently. It means, so some skills do often develop later than they would for school children, but that isn't always the case. I know self-directed children who've learnt to read around the age of three, also children who haven't learnt to read until they were about 13. Doesn't seem to matter. And in fact, Harriet Patterson's research shows that with home-educated children, the age that they learn to read doesn't seem to matter in terms of their outcome later on it's not like at school where late reading is associated with with a poor educational outcome and I think reading is another one of these cases of a paradox that's set up where schools make it really hard to be a late reader and then when a child is a late reader they say that means the child's disordered but what if that isn't the case what if it's actually the school that is setting up this need to learn to read and if that wasn't there actually a late reading child might be fine. In my experience around the age of 8 to 11 there's usually a transition when children become more able to focus for extended periods on learning and becoming experts. This doesn't mean they're going to sit down with worksheets and start doing algebra necessarily, it might do, but they may spend hours learning about the fish in Animal Crossing, they might learn how to ride a bike like my son or they might be learning how to use the command blocks in Minecraft. It's the style of learning, it's that shift in learning, which is important in self-directed learning, not actually the content of what they choose to learn. So I'm gonna argue that I think self-directed education makes sense. It's consistent with research into social learning and how that works. It's consistent with the research into intrinsic motivation. It's also consistent with research into how children interact with their environments and how they each create their own individualized situation. The environment is always subjective. It's never neutral. It always interacts with the child and what they already know. Self-directed education is consistent with the research on anxiety and well-being and how anxiety blocks learning, and it avoids the pitfalls which schools can never escape because of the way they operate. So we don't have to continue to put children in boxes, even if some of them are quite happy to be in boxes. Instead, we can free them to learn but it's not that easy because they cannot do it without us. The children are born with what they need in order to learn, but it's the adults who need to create the environment for them to do that and to create the right atmosphere for them to do that, one which is free of control and coercion of learning. We need to expand experiences and provide opportunities rather than restricting and controlling, which is what many of us naturally do because that is what was done to us at school. In order to allow self-directed education to flow, I'm saying the adults around children need to change their minds because we were schooled and schooling does work and how it really works is that it means that most of us believe there is no other way to learn. It means that it's really hard for us to imagine another way of being and of becoming educated. But the choice is ours and I'm going to hand that over to you. I'm just going to finish with a few references in case anyone wants to know more. That first reference there is a pre-order of my book. Then there are two articles I wrote, one in The Psychologist in March 2020, which is called Schools Out, and that's one which I in which I interviewed five prominent researchers into self-directed education. And then there's an article I wrote at the end called School Culture is Really Strange, which is an article about how school is really a cultural process and we should really see it as that rather than something that's neutral. Thank you very much for listening today. I've enjoyed talking to you all and I hope that you've enjoyed my talk. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freedom to Learn podcast. For more information about our work, check out our website at freedomtolearn.uk and find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.